Jesus. I, I want to just uh, stop and take, this is, a, this is a special day for me. Um, of all days of Pastor Appreciation Day, uh, I get my pastor. Um, but see, uh, Pastor Larry Burton, he wasn't just my pastor. He was better to me than my father was ever to me. And when I, when I think about the very term spiritual father, there's one name that just runs to my mind over and over again, a mentor, a God. Um, and for me, there's no better way that I could honor him on this day than to ask him to come and speak to you. And so um, I just want you guys to know that whenever I talk about the man who poured into my life the most, who's impacted me the most, I want you to know who this man is. And so would you do me a favor? And welcome Larry Burton to the stage this morning. I'm honored. I'm honored. I love you. You may be seated. Thank you. Scott and Julie and their beautiful girl. I just hate I don't have two grandsons their girl's age. Okay. Yeah. I'd pay the dowry today. Scott and Melissa, good to see y'all. I just honored. What a beautiful service. What a beautiful anointing of the Holy Spirit into the service we're going to come and gather at the front corporately ministry team's going to come back and i just believe god has a word how many of you believe the holy spirit has a word for the moment that was part of you if you have your bibles turn to genesis chapter 37 i'm going to be talking about the god of promise process and purpose we're going to take a look at Joseph's life we're going to take a look at the promises that he gives him how many of you know that God has a plan to bless you to, to give you an expected future so we serve that God What a beautiful moment. Didn't God's promise? That's good. Just, um, I'm very easily distracted, and I just want to worship while she's playing. So. But I've got to recall everything from memory, so I don't need any distractions. God is good. But God's promise, his process, and his purpose. Let me lay the foundation of purpose because we're talking about in pursuit of unity. Y'all have been in that series, and, and God is doing a work. How many of you believe that? And so in the purpose that God has for us, I don't care what covenant, what generation, what timetable, that covenant is simple. It leads to two things, that when God called you into the body of Christ and, and you became part of one body, how many of you know there's one Lord? There's one faith, there's one baptism, one God, he's the father of us all. There is one church, it's not splintered by denomination or by doctrine, there's one church. And so God has called us all. 
And the purpose is simply, when he brings you into the body of Christ, you have a purpose and a obligation because Jesus said it this way, Father, in John 17, make them one as you and I are one. So I want you to bring them into a place of unity. The second purpose is that we then win the world. How many of you know that was Joseph's call? To unify the nation of Israel and to save the world. And so I don't care what generation, what time, what covenant. Our purpose remains the same. Now, in the part of the promise and the process as God is taking us and he's leading us. There, how many of you understand there's power in agreement? But there's blessing in unity. There's power in agreement, but blessing in unity. Psalms 133, verse 1 through 3, he says this, How good and precious it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the anointing oil that ran down from Aaron's beard down to his garments to the floor. It's like the dew on Mount Hermon that came to rest upon the mountains of Zion. For there God commanded blessing evermore. If you want your home to be blessed, you've got to come to a place of walking in agreement and unity. If you want your church to be blessed, you have to operate in unity. I believe Satan's biggest attack against the church, against the family, and against our nation is division and chaos and confusion to, to break us apart from one another. There's a huge difference between togetherness and unity. You can take two cats, tie their tails together, throw them over a clothesline, you have togetherness. But how many of you know you don't have unity? There's some people, and I can say this because I don't know you, but there's probably some couples in this house who have togetherness, but you've missed unity for so long. Unity is... And togetherness means you're in the same house, you eat at the same table, you sleep in the same bed, eat the same food, watch the same programs, but you're not unified. There's a lot of churches across America that have togetherness. They sing the same songs, they hear the same word, they pray the same prayers, they lift their hands at the same time, but they're not unified. But God has got to get us all on the same page because we will never have the power to do the second part of our mission if we don't unify in the first part. So Genesis 37, we'll begin with verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob, and Joseph was 17 years of age, and he was feeding his father's flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wife. And the Bible says he brought his father their evil report. Now Jacob, whom God renamed Israel, he loved Joseph more than all of his other sons or all of his other children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than them all, they hated him and refused to speak kindly to him. And Joseph dreamed a dream which he told to his brothers, and they hated him even more. He said, in the dream that we dreamed, he said, we were all in the field. We were binding sheaves. And he said, my sheaf arose and stood tall, and your sheaves encircled mine and bowed down to the ground. And they said, shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you have dominion 
over us. And they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And Joseph dreamed another dream, which he told to his brothers. He said, I saw the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bow down before me. And when he told his father and his brothers, he said, his father rebuked him sharply, saying, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed bow before you? With our face to the ground, and his brothers envied him, but Jacob kept note of them in his heart. And Joseph's brothers were keeping the flock and feeding the flock in Shechem. And, and Jacob called Joseph saying, Are your brothers not keeping the flocks and feeding the flocks in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said, Here am I. Then verse 17, the second part of verse 17 said, He searched for his brothers and he found them in Dothan in verse 18. When his brothers saw him coming afar off, they conspired against him to kill him. They said, Behold, the dreamer comes. Come, let us kill him. We're going to throw his body into a pit, and we will tell our father that an evil beast has killed and devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. Then Reuben, who was Jacob's eldest son, when he heard their plot, he saved Joseph or rescued Joseph from being killed by his brothers, and he said, Let us not kill him. Don't shed his blood, but let's cast him into this empty pit in the wilderness, but lay no hand upon him because his plan was to come back later and rescue him and return him to his father. And it came to pass that as Joseph met his brothers, they stripped him of his coat of many colors and they cast him into an empty pit which held no water. And when they sat down to eat bread, they lifted up their eyes and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites from Gilead, which is in Midian, coming with camels loaded down with spices, balm, and myrrh to sell in Egypt. And Judas said, he said, what does it profit us to kill our brother and conceal his blood? He said, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, lest his blood be upon us, for he is our brother. So his brothers consented to sell him. And when the merchants of Midianite passed by, they drew him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. See, God gave Joseph a promise. That promise was designed by God to encourage him through the tough times of life. How many of you know the promises of God are yes and amen? Oh, that was a little weak. I said, how many of you know the promises of God are in him yes and amen? And so God gives you these promises and this plan and this purpose. It's kind of a mental and spiritual portrait in your life to kind of keep you motivated to say, God has a plan. He's doing something big in my life to encourage you in the dark moments. And I can promise you, you're going to have some dark moments. You know what God did not tell Joseph was the process. What God does not tell us is a process that he's going to take us through to change us. Because the fact is, most of us are not qualified for the call of God that is upon our life when he first calls us. But aren't you glad that God takes you from glory to glory to glory, from one level of victory to the next level of victory, and he doesn't give up on you, but he works with you until you're prepared to accomplish his purpose and him fulfill his promise. So we're in pursuit of unity. There's three thoughts that I believe have practical application. The last thought has three addendums, or there's three points to that. But things I believe that we can learn from that if you want to grow, how many of you want to grow into the promise that God has for you? 
If you want to grow into the promise that God has for you, the first thing that has to do is self must change. Now, there's a principle that relates to unity, and that is this. Unity follows love and humility. I want you to remember that. Unity will always follow love and humility or selflessness. I have found my greatest enemy. My greatest enemy is not Satan. It's not a liberal left. It's not an atheist. It's not a Satanist. It's not a humanist. My biggest enemy in life is me. Do you understand that you're your greatest enemy? You've done more damage to you than your... than the person that you dislike the most. You have done more damage to your potential than anybody else on the planet. See, we were born selfish, and most of us had a lot of relapses. Oh, I, they didn't understand that. Let me speak to my people over here. I said we were born selfish, and we've had some relapses. And I've never met a polite baby. I've never met a little 18-month-old baby who woke up at 2 o'clock in the night, and he was cold and wet and hungry, said, you know what? I know Mom and Dad had a tough day at work today. I'm just going to lay here until 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to let them sleep. No, au contraire, my friend, because that baby says this, if, if I'm not happy, uh-uh, ain't nobody else in this church, I mean in this house, oh, come on, somebody, I feel some preach coming on. If I'm not happy, ain't nobody else going to be happy, and, and so it, it disrupts the whole atmosphere of the place because it's upset. Paul said it this way when I was a child. He said, I thought like a child. I acted like a child, and I spoke like a child. But there came a time that I had to grow up. How many of you believe it's time for the church to grow up? He said, when I became a man, I had to put away childish things. There's two sides of childishness. One is immaturity, and the other is insecurity. If you're taking notes, you need to write that down. Immaturity says, I want my way. I want what I want, when I want, how I want. I want my, I want everybody to cotton to give in to my personal preferences and my opinions. There's a, there's a huge difference between principles of God's word and preferences and opinions. And yet we fuss and we fight and churches are divided over preferences and opinions and we forget the principles of God's word. And so we fuss and fight over the non-essentials. Insecurity means I have to control. The more insecure you were growing up, the more controlling you are as an adult. It's not only do I want my way, I want other people to do what I want them to do. And you see, those are the two things that when we look at Joseph's life, we find that the first place that God takes him, he puts him down in the pit. Now, can I tell you, that was not the brother's first choice. But in the pit, Joseph had an epiphany moment. Have you ever had an, a wake-up call? In the pit, he understood something. Not everybody loves me like my daddy loves me. 
Not everybody singing my praises. Not everybody. See, there was a reason why they wanted to kill the brother because the brother was a jerk. Oh, help me, somebody. Isn't it amazing how God takes jerks and he brings them up to leaderships? Oh, there's hope for me and you. Isn't that true? There's hope for us. Why, why was he a jerk? Number one, he was a tattletale. Everything the brothers did, he had to run tell daddy about it. I don't like a tattletale. I don't believe that spiritual garbage collectors are a spiritual gift. He was arrogant and proud. His daddy made him a coat of many colors. You'd think he'd take it to the cleaners. He'd put it in the closet, wear it on Christmas and Easter. No. He has to wear it every day of the week because he's got to show everybody else that I'm my daddy's favorite. Look at me. I'm somebody. I'm better than you. People judge their relationship with you based on how you make them feel about themselves. Oh. So we understand that he's childish. He's a tattletale. He's arrogant and proud. And he's super spiritual. Oh, let me tell you about the revelation. If you were on par with me, God would give you dreams. But oh. I, thank you for that over underwhelming applause. <laughs> okay, I've struggled more in ministry with people that were self-righteous and super spiritual than anybody else on the planet. Because they had a revelation that God didn't give everybody else and they thought, man, I'm better than everybody. And that's what Joseph felt until he ended up in the pit. And he had to come face to face with himself and say, you know what, the reason that I'm here is not my fault. How do we know that he got the lesson inside the pit? Because of the thing that did not happen. When he's in the pit, what we do not see or hear is Joseph running his mouth about his brothers. James said a man is a perfect man when he can come to the point of controlling his tongue. Wow. So he's not down in the pit saying, hey, I'm, when I get out here, I'm going to tell daddy on y'all or I'm going to get even. He keeps his mouth shut because we've got to come to the place. And here's what God is teaching us. There comes a point that if you want to grow into leadership, you've got to learn how to humble yourself. And you cannot lead until you learn how to love. Hmm. Second thought. If you're going to grow into the dream that God promised, you got to learn how to serve. Now, I want you to understand the unity principle here is this, is servanthood involves, I came to encourage you, servanthood involves sacrifice and suffering. Jesus came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. That's big. In Genesis 39, they brought Joseph to Egypt, where an Egyptian by the name of Potiphar, who was, he was an officer in Pharaoh's army, but he was captain over his personal guard. He bought him as a slave, and the Lord was with Joseph, he said, and he prospered everything that he did, so that when the Egyptians saw that the Lord was with him and prospered all that he did, he made him Lord over his palace and put all things under his control. And the Bible says the Lord blessed the Egyptian for Joseph's sake. He learned servanthood. 
Jesus, let's go back 2,000 years ago. He's starting his leadership team. He pulls out 12 people for his leadership team. He says, this is the core group. We're going to build the kingdom of God around. And he begins to teach the principle of servanthood because it's one of the biggest principles that Christ ever taught. That if you want to become great, you've got to become least. That the way up is down. That if you want to rule, you've got to learn how to serve. And he taught that over and over and over again. He's up on the Mount of Transfiguration and uh, uh, with Peter, James, and John, and the rest of them are down at the bottom. They're arguing and they're contentious over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. That's why they don't have any power. They can't cast out the demoniac because they're fussing over who's going to have the... There's a lot of powerless churches. Oh, help me. Somebody, Jesus is there. He's full of his glory, but in the bottom of the mountain, and we're fussing and fighting over who's going to have what position and who's going to be in charge and who's going to be in control. And we're not able to deliver the people that need to be saved. Servanthood. So remember on the triumphal Sunday, on Palm Sunday, as Jesus begins to go down to Jerusalem before the crucifixion, and the crowds are saying, Hosanna to the king. This is Messiah. He's coming. And the, and the disciples said, boy, this is the week. Is we're about to get our thrones, and we're about to get our positions. And all week long, they fussed and fought over who's going to be the best in the kingdom. James and John even pull out the mom card. Oh, oh, you know that was a hit with the other nine or ten. I can't count this morning. Math was not my strong suit. And so she comes to Jesus and says, Master, when you come into your kingdom, would you grant that my sons, James and John, will sit on your right and your left hand? And Jesus says, that's not really mine to give. He said, that belongs to the Father. He'll give it to the people that deserve it. But he asked him a question. He said, can you drink the cup that I drink? And they said, sure we can. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was that cup that he agonized over saying, Father, if at all possible, let this cup pass, let this cup pass from me. Because that cup of servanthood was a cup of suffering and sacrifice. If you want unity in your home, you got to quit demanding everything goes your way. you got to learn how to serve. you got to come to the point of sacrificing for the success of your marriage. If you want your church to prosper and to be blessed because God said he commanded blessing in the place of unity. There's power and agreement, but there's blessing in unity. you got to come to the point of sacrifice. So God takes Joseph. He puts him in a place at 17 years of age. He would have been, listen, just at the right age to belong to Faith's youth group. And he's a pimply-faced 17-year-old boy. They put him in irons, and they take him, and they sell him as a slave. He ends up in a culture that he does not know, with people that don't like him, that curse him, that he does not speak their language. He's got to learn everything over again. But in the midst of it, the Lord was with him. The Lord prospered him. The anointing of God was upon him on a tough assignment, but he learned how to serve people that don't love God. Oh, I'm going somewhere. See, some of you are involved in a job that you hate. 
people curse you, they talk about you, they resent you because you're a Christian and you've been saying, God, get me a better job. God doesn't want to get you a better job. God may need you to be the written epistle known and read of men because they're not going to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But they're looking at the story of your life and what God is waiting for is what happened in Judges with Gideon. God clothed himself, he labosh, he put Gideon on and wore Gideon to work. What if God wants to clothe himself with you and show up at that bad job, that tough job, that assignment that you don't really like so that he can use you to be a blessing to people that curse you, that hate you, and you will sacrifice and suffer until they see and they can taste that Jesus is good. The third thought. Don't you like final thoughts? This thought still has three points. So it's not the final one yet. Okay, but if you want to grow into the plan that God has for you, you've got to trust God with the misunderstood moments in life. Because here's what. The unity principle is this is God will test your unity with conflict, with hurt, with pain, betrayal, with injustice. Did you understand what I said? So we talk about unity, and that's one thing. But God's going to test the unity of a church and of a family by conflict. The issue is can you maintain the right poise and maintain the right attitude and character when everything goes against you. The first point of point three, I guess we'll call that A. Entrusting the misunderstood moments with God. Listen, don't become bitter or angry or resentful toward God when doing the right thing costs you greatly. I've seen people who gave it their all, got saved, they gave it all, but, but when they gave it their all, all hell came against them, and they said, I can't do this. So to back up, we want to back up to Joseph's days at Potiphar's house because how many of you know Joseph did everything right? Potiphar's wife was basically a military widow. Her husband was always, as captain of Pharaoh's personal guard, she was always gone. She was lonely. She wanted somebody to hug her, somebody to tell her how special she and how beautiful she was. And she was just lonely. There's something about the anointing of God that is attractive. And day after day, she saw the anointing of God upon Joseph's life, and she began to fantasize about Joseph, and she began to plot about Joseph. She began to see what happens in the recess of your mind will be acted out on the stage of your life. It's a different message. So she comes up with this plan. She says, listen, she gives all the servants except Joseph a day off. She takes some rose petals, sprinkles them down the hall. She lights some scented candles. She takes some Calvin Klein obsession, puts it, dabs it behind the ear and on her wrist. And she puts on this little number from Victoria's Secret, if you know what I mean. Plays a little Marvin Gaye, puts on a little too much makeup and too much rouge. Hoping to get the brother confused. Hoping he likes his women just a little on the trashy side. How many of you getting it? Because <coughs> Joseph, he comes down the hall. He knows something's wrong. She reaches out of the bedroom, grabs a hold of him, and the brother loses his second coat. He's not good at holding on to coats. 
And for doing the right thing, he's thrown into prison. Sometimes you can do all the right things and things are still going to go wrong. Don't get angry at God. Because if you'll trust God, God's got this. If you'll trust him, he's got it. So we, we come to the point, the miss. The misunderstood moments. Part B of number three is when God, listen, puts you on the shelf or he puts you in the waiting room. It's not because God is mad at you. It's because God is positioning you for your promotion. Did you get that? God orders our steps. He knows the path that we take. And so what God wants, the unity principle is you've got to have patience. We don't like patience because tribulation worketh patience. We, we want God to be instant success and access. How long was Joseph in prison? I don't know. He was 17 when he was sold as a slave. He was 30 when he was promoted to the palace. So I don't know if it's two, three, five years. I don't know how long he was, but he was long enough that he kind of felt like God had forgotten him. How many of you ever been put on the shelf and you kind of felt like, God, God, where am I? Where are you? I want you to understand that God's silence is not his absence. The best way that I can frame it is with the nation of Israel. They were in captivity in Egypt for 430 years, and during that time they were building pyramids for the Pharaohs. They were praying. They were crying out to God. God, deliver us from these taskmasters. This is difficult work. God, we're tired of doing this. We're tired of mixing the mud and the straw, making the bricks. We're tired of all this. 430 years. That's a long time, and you begin to feel like God's kind of forgotten you. Some of you have been stuck in a moment for a long time, and you feel like God's kind of forgotten me. And you say, where's where God? What's God doing? God is... You don't care. Can I tell you what God was doing for those 430 years while they were building pyramids? God had the Canaanites building them houses, building them cities. There's somebody in this house. Building them roads, digging their wells, planting vineyards and orchards, building fences, growing their flocks, of sheep and their herds of cattle. Can I tell you why? Because God, when he brought his children out, he wanted to bring them into a place that was fully furnished. There's a God that cares about you, and he's not absent and he's not silent. He's at work on your behalf. The final, now we're at the final thought. The third thing is, in trusting the misunderstood moments with God, you understand that unity is going to be tried by hurt. And if you want to win this battle, and if you want to be, get to where you need to do, you've got to learn how to forgive. This is the big one. Are you ready? You've got to learn how to forgive the people that hurt you, especially your family and your friends. Can I tell you, sometimes it's easier to forgive your enemies than it is the people that you love. There's no greater hurt than when somebody in your family, whether that's biological or spiritual, there's no greater hurt than when somebody you deeply love hurts you.
David said it this way concerning Ahithophel. It wasn't, it wasn't a stranger. It wasn't my enemy that hurt me, that lifted up his heel against me. But he said it was my companion, my counselor, my friend. We went to church together. We worshiped. We were at the altar together. We, he was my best friend. That's why it hurts so much. And I don't know if I can handle this moment. We've all felt the Brutus knife and the Judas kiss. We've all felt that. So it comes to the moment, and I preached a message one time, what to do when the church hurts you. John 18, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross. Peter's brought a sword to a prayer meeting, and he's gone to sleep. Judas meets with Caiaphas, the high priest, gets the temple guards, and he comes to arrest Jesus in the garden. He kisses Jesus. Peter wakes up. He takes his sword, and there's, he's surrounded by temple guards who also have swords, but he picks on the guy that doesn't have a weapon. Oh, how many of you ever met somebody like that? They don't go to this church, but they do go to some other church. So he takes his sword, tries to cut off. Malchus's head, he, Malchus dodges, he cuts his ear off. His head is bleeding profusely. He cannot hear out of that ear. His ear is laying on the ground. In all practicality, how many of you know, Malchus could say, I have been hurt by the church. <laughs> Hello? In fact, within 50-some-odd days, Peter's fixing to be the keynote speaker on the day of Pentecost. He's going to be voted in kind of like the head of the church. But on this day, he, he tried to kill the brother. Can I tell you, there's going to be times that people in the church are going to hurt you. There's times that people in the church are going to hurt you, and sometimes the leadership of the church is going to hurt you. There's times people in the church are going to hurt you. They're not going to just try to hurt you. They're going to try to kill you. Thinking they're doing God a favor. Oh, thinking they're doing God's will. And there's no evidence that Peter ever apologized to Malchus. for. If you're waiting for an apology for the hurt that you've been through, you may be waiting a long time. But we're going to end with this, and that is this. Malchus, his response. Malchus has an option. Number one, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He could put, pull one of the swords from, because Jesus told Peter, put his sword away. He could have pulled one of the other swords. He could have whacked, whacked Peter's ear off. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it leaves everybody blind, toothless, and ugly. How many of you know that? <laughs> so that was one thing he could have done. I'm going to get my pound of flesh. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back the same way. Or he could have said, you know what? If uh, Peter, you're a representative of Jesus, if that's what Jesus is like, I don't ever want to go to church again. Oh, help me. You, you know some of the people like that that they may, oh, there's a bunch of hypocrites. Peter's just a hypocrite. Got to go on Facebook. Got to tell everybody. Or he could have, you know what? He's sitting there. He's holding his, his cut off place on his head. He's bleeding profusely. Could have wrapped a rag around it and he could have picked up his ear, put it in a preservative jar uh, to go around, to get on Facebook, show a picture of the ear. Let me show you. Oh, come on, somebody. i got to show you. It ain't enough for me to tell you. I want to show you. Look here. Huh? Why are you speaking this here? <laughs> yeah, are you with me? 
There's people like that. They got to show the scar. They got to drag it around. They want everybody. It's not enough for them to drop out of church. They want you to drop out of church because the church hurt them. They want you to pick up their offense. But there's one final option is he can let Jesus reach down and pick up the ear, touch the place that he's wounded, restore his healing and his hearing so he could live life whole. So you understand what Jesus wants you to do. Until you forgive, you, can't, you cannot receive the healing you need until you forgive. Ministry team, come to the platform. I want you to stand. I'd like for you to come. Let's gather around the front. I, I realize it's probably getting close to 12. We wanted to get the beat the Baptist to the lunch place, but you <laughs> may be just a tad short. Would you come stand around the front? Let's unify as a church family and just get as close as you can. And I'm not going to keep you long, but I think what is going to happen in the next few moments is important. Stand close to the front. People coming in behind you. Just scoot up, guys. I love y'all. Scott, thank you for the privilege of sharing the word today. I've been retired for a year and, and it's been hard because we made a decision that once we retire, we're not going to stay in the church to mess things up for the next guy. Is the ethical thing is just to move on. And it's been a we've been to like 13 different churches, and it's been horrible to try to find a place where you feel loved. Can I tell you this? And I'm not blowing smoke or just trying to give out undue compliment, but the anointing of God that I have felt in this place this morning. Is far greater. The unity I felt in this house is far greater than any place of those 13 churches we've been from churches of 50 up to churches of 12, 1500. And what you have here, guys, is special. It's special. But some of you are locked in a moment, you're stuck. And I, I don't know what it is. For Maybe for somebody, it's your childhood was such a tough childhood that things happened to you that are unspeakable and you've never been able to forgive. It's vital because here's what happened if you don't forgive. If you don't forgive, that person lives rent-free in your mind from then on. But something amazing happens. The moment you forgive somebody, you evict them. You don't have to feed them and keep them and hold them and take care of them any longer. The moment you forgive them and let it go and turn it over to God. Some of you are in a marriage situation. There's been a lot of constant tension and hurt and pain in the house and and you're, you're, each one of them holding to your own position and you haven't learned how to humble yourself. You've not learned how to sacrifice and you especially have not learned how to forgive. And until you learn how to operate in forgiveness, there is no unity. And God wants to restore that. 
this church, and I don't even know what all you've been through, but this church has been through some hurt. Hurt that came through believers. Hurt that came through leadership. And you've got to let it go. You've got to learn to forgive them and leave it alone. Quit showing the scars, showing the ear to everybody. You just got to move on. God's doing some great things in this church. He's not done. He's only begun. Unity is not given until unity is applied. Every one of you are unity merchants. There's a responsibility to seek the peace of this house. I don't know where you are or what you're going through, but as the ministry team plays and sings, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to bow your hearts and your heads, and I'm going to ask you to let the Holy Spirit deal with you at the point of what's going on in your life. If it's in your marriage, if that's been in your past, if that's been the hurt that this church has gone through, I want you to forgive the people that have hurt you, and I want you to let it go. And I want you to feel the peace and the presence as God just lifts that load. That the days of heaven are, are going to be far greater than the, anything y'all have ever been through. Behind. So would you bow your heads? Would you talk to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit talks to you?